I'm Trini. I'm the founder of Trini London. And for me, it's a matter of energy. Since its inception, the beauty industry has been predicated on the cultural chasing of youth. I'm Kelly Kovac, founder of Beauty Matter. As an industry, we are perpetually chasing the next cohort opportunity. The obsession with millennials gave way to Gen Z, which will give way to Generation Alpha. This obsession with youth is not only consumer-facing. There is also a perception in the beauty industry that innovation is being spurred on by young founders. But Trini Woodhall, CEO and founder of Trini London, is one of the 50-plus founders defying stereotypes, shattering that stigma, and building a truly inclusive brand for a certain type of woman rather than a certain aged woman. Trini, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to just dive right into this amazing brand you've built, and I think your background will sort of unveil itself. Trini London targets 45-plus women in what you describe as the invisible woman. Given the data on this demographic, I find it personally mind-boggling that more brands haven't embraced this opportunity. It's one that's close to my heart because I'm of the demographic. But can you share the impetus for starting Trini London? Because I'm sure there are a lot of businesses you could have started, but why this one? Well, I first of all want to say that when I say the invisible woman, I'm not talking about how I see her. I'm talking about how other people in advertising standards industry might see that community. But I have gone around the world for 20 years making over women. And the first thing they noticed was their makeup. And I think when I look at all the help that the millennial generation gets and Gen Z gets, and I look at how we define ourselves very much by a look, a makeup that gave us our first bit of confidence. And sometimes we stick with that, however far down the path of life we go. And if you're Generation Z or a millennial, that's kind of fine because you can get away with it for about 20 years. But after about 20 years, that look, begins to wear you and define you. And I just thought, whenever I've made over the 5,000 women I've made over in 16 countries, it's that woman who's needed help the most and has had the least available to her. And that's why I felt that's who I want to do Trinity London for. Trinity London, though, is for everyone. It is a brand that when it was established, to me, it was about nobody should feel excluded. Somebody maybe who wants to shop their makeup at Walmart, maybe, but nobody who wants to seriously look at makeup and skincare should feel excluded by their shape, their skin tone, their age. And by doing that, and by having many different voices in the brand, you know, it really helps for women to see themselves. But one thing, and I don't know what you feel about this, Kelly, is that as a demographic, we've been targeted for so long by images of what beauty is defined by on an 18-year-old model. So even though we kind of know that's bullshit, there's a part of us that's so used to it that when we see a reflection of ourselves, it's quite hard to swallow because beauty is still about aspiration. It's about, I want to buy that because it will make me feel and perhaps look a certain way. So I think there is a very delicate balance in how you are realistic and yet aspirational. I 100% agree. I mean, I think that the beauty industry chases youth. It may say that it's inclusive now, but at the end of the day, it still chases youth. 
every time there's a new cohort, it's all about, it was about millennials, now it's about Gen Z, then it'll be about alpha, but the older cohorts kind of get forgotten. When you set about developing this brand, what did the development process look like? And sort of what were your non-negotiables? Because it's quite innovative. You launched with color and you could have very easily done sort of this stock route, but everything you do is so intentional. I think I wouldn't ever start something that wasn't entirely derived from myself working closest to it. And I have tried many, many things. You know, my christening moment into skincare was going to Lord & Taylor when I was 15 with my godmother and being given $50, which was a fortune, by the way. I mean, I'd never been given that in my life. And my godmother said, go and spend it on skincare and makeup. And it was like going into a cathedral, you know, because in England, my mother for my acne had given me Pond's cold cream because she was Scottish with good skin. But my godmother kind of understood it might take more than that. And Clinique had just launched. So that was the beginning of my journey. And if you're somebody who has brilliant skin from a young age, you maybe don't have as fanatical a makeup routine as somebody who's had bad acne, because you're always thinking about how to cover what the base should be like, how it should become a part of your skin, that you don't want to look cakey, that you have to find the right tones. You're so obsessed with it. So before I even worked in Making Over Women, I bought so many different brands and I tried so many things out. And then in my 20 years of doing makeovers, I worked with really big makeup company brands, you know, from MAC to Estee Lauder to Ignot in Poland to all these different brands, Australia brands too. And there would always be a group of young makeup artists there doing the same makeup on somebody. Just it was the red lip was a riff lift the season. I couldn't bear the trends of makeup because I thought, but this woman doesn't suit a cold red lip if the cold red lip is in. So I got my idea for the personalization about refining your colors in makeup from having to re-educate all those teams of makeup artists who were lovely and good at their craft, but were being led by what they should do as a trend. Coupled with what I was finding in the marketplace and what in the end I would, you know, not be able to do for all of the women I made over, but I'll go home to my bathroom and then I'll think, okay, I want to make a good base. So let me put in it. What am I going to put in it? And I literally then, I remember the first base I made I took some uh, little Chanel Aqua Lumiere or the Aqua Water one. I mixed it with the Bobbi Brown Balm. I put some vitamin C powder in there. I put in some kind of weird thing I got from Israel, which was a mattifying thing. I put in all this weird mix and I mixed it together. And obviously there was too many oil and water derivatives and I had to kind of change it around so that it would work. But I wanted to get to this place where I put something on that would become my skin and yet cover. And that was that first little thing I sent to the lab. And I said, can you make this? You know, I've put all these different things in it, these ingredients I put in it, but can you actually make it so it's a stable formula and it will become my skin and it will have SPF in it as well. And that was actually the basis of original BFF. And then when I was looking at things like blusher, I hate blusher where there's too much powder because I think women can have a little bit of facial hair and I feel powders on on the hair. I never love that. I wanted skin around, you know, I don't feel a whole skin should glow, but I feel around the cheek, you should get that beautiful polish of an apple. And I wanted to recreate that. So how could I get that luminosity without the scariness of shimmer? So that took a long time. So it all started like that. And then I'd send it to this lab in Italy and I'd say, can you make this please? And I was learning all the terminology because I didn't know the terminology, Kelly, of proper base terminology. I know ingredient names really well, but just when you're using bases for makeup, there's, I mean, it's a mixture of oils and pigments basically, but when you want to put active ingredients in, 
you know, I always find in formulations, even for skincare makeup hybrids, it's about what's the shining star and who are the supporting acts that will play with the shining star, won't destabilize the shining star, make that star shine brighter. You know, so I formulated this product called De-Stress and I'd been researching for two years about the stress on women's skin and the effect of it. And I've always been interested because I produce, I'm sure you've had this in your life and many women listening, vast amounts of cortisol, you know, that stress-releasing hormone. And so it does have this effect on the skin. So I studied the effect on the skin and it dehydrates our skin. It's like a dog, you know, when it's scared, it pants, does that to the skin and it does other things skin, you know, environmentally it's damaging too. So I then found neofrolene, which was a complex that reduced the levels of cortisol on the epidermis. And I thought, this is the most magical ingredient that you put on at the very end because cortisol sits on the outermost layer. So de-stress was born and then we did trials on it of how much did it reduce the levels of the appearance of stress in the skin. And then I then thought, okay, now let me add pigment into it. So pigment's always the last thing I add in. And that's how I developed my formulations. And it started with the stack. So there was an innovation to me I wanted to create, which was I wanted to give portable makeup to women that made them feel they didn't have to be a makeup artist to do it. You know, that they could literally use their fingers. If they knew how to finger paint, they can make up their face. And I believe the same principle. But I wanted it to look beautiful because I wanted it to be an aspirational brand. So the stack was built. That was a challenge for me, Kelly, because anyone who's developed something where you've done a tooling, your initial prototype makes you cry because you have your beautiful CAD drawings and you think this is it. And I, I have a lovely man who works with us called Arno and I, he had drawn it beautifully, but I kind of like said, it needs to click, it needs to be airtight. They need to add a drop. They need to open, but not open too quickly. All these different things. If you have old hands, you should be able to undo the lids. And the first one came back and it was, you know, molded, literally played it, but it was so appalling. And then these ones came back off the machine, you know, not CD machine. What nurse it called Kelly? The replicating machine. I've yes. lost the words. <laughs> and the 11th one worked. So it's a process developing around and you've got to be never, I think there's stages in the life of a CEO where you've got to at some stage delegate and 80% is good enough. But at the very beginning, when you are formulating what the concept of the brand is, when I had to learn a lot about tech and built up a tech team, but looking at how personalization works, that would be personable for people who maybe were not millennials to do personalization, to find out what color suits them. That took a long, long time. And you've got to be on top of every single detail because it is DNA of yourself. You're imprinting on a brand. When you launched with color rather than skincare, immediately I was like, my God, she totally gets it. Because I know once I was sort of in that north of 45, your skin changes so much that no one really talks about, but there are products on the market from a skincare perspective that you figure it out. But the biggest thing I struggled with in even being in the industry for decades was my makeup. Like all of a sudden, nothing worked anymore. You know, kind of going through that, there weren't a lot of solutions. And I think there are a handful of brands that have attempted to target this demographic, but I think they totally missed the mark. I think they've missed the mark for a long time because they haven't seen the mark. I think now they think they see the mark, but they think reaching this demographic is through menopause. And speaking from personal experience, I don't want to be reminded that I'm menopausal every day. I think it's a health and wellness opportunity, less so a beauty opportunity. 
But everything you've built sort of represents this demographic so effortlessly. And when you launched, it literally was, I'm like, oh my God, finally someone who gets it. Maybe you can shed some light for others on what makes this woman tick. To me, there are so many versions of this woman, but I think that we reach a stage where I think, oddly, I have to say my 40s were harder than my 50s. Because in my 40s, physically, you know, you're going down that path of life. All right. So you kind of know it. You see the crow's feet. Some people it affects others. It doesn't. You might do Botox or other tweakments because you think I'd like to do that. But I think because your energy levels are changing a little bit, that's the thing I think that women notice the most. And when we're tired, we don't have so much energy to do things. So the easier something can be for you to do, the more I feel you'll do it. You know, it's not a faff. It's so easy to learn. It's so easy to do. So why don't I try? You know, I think there's definitely that in it. And I think that we can get to our mid forties and we can get to a stage in our life where we are the parent our children want us to be, the daughter our parents want us to be, the partner our partner wants us to be, the sister our sister wants us to be. And we kind of think, who the fuck am I? Because I have to be so many different people for all these different people in my life. So I think in our 40s is when we lose ourselves the most and we can come out blossoming to our 50s. To me, it's the best decade yet, I have to say, just on my personal journey. But we can, and it's how we can have the tools to do it. So it's a lot more than beauty and makeup, as you say, Kelly. You know, I think that for me, it's about who do I want to surround myself with as another woman? You know, do I want to surround myself with habits that die hard or with supportive women who I can support as well? Have I got to a place where I know my own voice well enough that I want equality in relationships wherever they are in my life? I don't want to be the weight, the anchor, the whatever. So in some instances, we can't quite do that because we might have aging parents we have to look after. We might have kids who haven't left home yet. But there are other places in our life we can make those choices. You know, we can make those choices in our partnership and things like that. But it's finding the strength to do it and finding the energy to do it. So for me, I had to really look after my health in my 40s. You know, I'd taken everything for granted. I'd never bothered to exercise much. I ate what I liked. For me, it's never about size. It's about the right energy to put in my body. So I feel that I have, like I said at the beginning, this word energy so that I feel I can do anything. You know, if I keep eating sugar at three o'clock, I'm going to feel shattered and my brain is going to feel fried. I knew I had to, like in my forties, I knew that I had to kind of refresh myself. I needed a refresh. I've been the same person for too long, you know, and it was feeling stale. So I needed to kind of look at how do I dress? You know, how do I put my makeup on? Have I had the same haircut that my same hairdresser who's too bloody lazy to try something new on me has done? You know, do I need to switch things up, change the hairdresser, think of a different makeup, maybe just follow different people on social and think that style I like and her body shape is similar to mine. And she's sort of got something in it, you know, just find out who those new role models could be for you if you feel lost in that era. But I feel it will then make it it's like the Scottish play. We could refer to this M word. Okay. Let's refer to it as the Scottish play. <laughs> but I do feel that physically in our skin, things are changing. You know, we are going to produce far less collagen and elastane. We have a skin that doesn't feel so bouncy. Even if we do tons of treatments and stuff, that kind of, I believe that however much or little money you have, I love 
slapping and massaging myself. I can't emphasize this enough. It's about how the oxygen reverberates around my body and therefore around my brain. And if I start with my face and I do my scissoring and I do my kind of lifting up my cheekbones and I do simple little things, Kelly, like, you know, in the two years we spent not seeing many other people, we probably smiled less. You know, I still do work quite a bit from home, but I have this time when I'll, I have all these things on my computer here I can't show you, but one is like breathe. And another one is the two words I've chosen for the month. You know, I choose these words for the month. And the other one is smile, because if I'm on my own, I just, I need to remember that. And those things stimulate energy, smiling, physically massaging your face and your body, slapping your, you know, slapping your arms, getting the energy flowing is so important. Just wakes us up. Some of the brands I work with probably like I sound like a broken record about the Gen X opportunity. Sometimes I laugh because they'll agree with me, but then they're stumped by how do you reach these women as if we're all walking around like with a rotary phone or something. And you have said that your target market is more of an attitude than an age thing, which is 100%, I think, what makes this generation tick. I think this is a generation that can't be, you know, those age brackets don't really work. So I live in the city. I got married when I was 48. But my cousin who lives 90 minutes away has three kids, two grandchildren, and lives in a retirement community. Yet if you looked at our age, we are the same person, but we could not be more different. And I think that's the nuances of it being a state of mind that really kind of makes this generation tick is lost on people. The thing is also, Kelly, you could both be equally happy. Yes. You know what I mean? It's what we're not here is judging one over the other. It's what makes you happy and what brings you fulfillment. But, you know, I have a friend of mine to give a parallel and also she leads a great life. But she said to me the other day, Trini, you really have to look at financial planning because you might only have 25 summers left. (laughs) I am slapping my head, by the way, for those on the podcast. I am slapping my head, okay? I went, Jane, are you effing kidding me? And great that she was being practical, you know, really good and good for her and fantastic. And probably, you know, when I'm, I've never lived my life that way. I think it's very prudent. I really admire people who save and have everything sorted, but I've never been that person. But I also felt I can't live by counting how much longer I've got to live. So you're primarily a D to C brand, you know, without sharing your secret sauce, how do you reach these women? Well, what's really interesting in this is that there are many women who are desperate for us to come to a shop. They really are. Because traditionally, still, the majority of this audience shop in a shop. And so for me, I probably have successfully converted three quarters of a million women who would normally shop in a shop to the idea that maybe you are going to get a better experience online. And that was really talking about my experience sometimes in store. And there can be fantastic people who are in store trained facialist makeup artist ever who can be incredible. But also you can go in a store and somebody will put totally the wrong shade foundation on you and different things. And you go outside and you think, I look like a clown and I'm orange or whatever it might be. Or, you know, a woman of color who never gets the right undertone correctly diagnosed and is even worse in terms of excluded from having the right shade. So I found that frustrating. What I also found frustrating for myself as a consumer is I would go in and I, I think there is a paradox of choice going on. There is so much makeup. There's so many makeup brands. And, you know, you go along and you think, okay, there's 38 red lips here. Which one am I? 
you know. And I thought, how can I make that part of the experience in a department store better? So by doing Match to Me, which looks at your skin, hair and eye, because I never believe, hey, you've got green eyes, you must wear this makeup. I just think that's crap. I think it's that combination of everything that contributes to it. So it was done for me. It's storytelling. It's telling other women about experiences that they might have had. So they can think, actually, maybe that's me. And then they think, well, shall I have the courage to try? And then it got to a critical mass where, you know, first of all, 500 people tried and then 1,000. And then they told other people. And now 80% of the people who buy from our website buy using the personalization tool because it takes, you know, 200 products down to the 78 they suit. And because it works, so people, you know, I would say 95% of the time get exactly their foundation shade, whereas I'd say 70% of the time in the department store, you'll get that. So that's why I think we managed to do it. And there still is a lot of work to be done because there still will be, you know, I would love to introduce the sort of suburban mum in Chicago to Trini London. And I'm not saying the suburban mum outside of Chicago doesn't shop online, but I met her when I did Oprah and I love this woman. I love, I love middle America nearly more than I love bi-coastal America. And I think that's because when I did Oprah, there was a lot of middle America on those Oprah shows and I got to know a lot of them. And it's kind of what you see is what you get. And I like that about women. And bi-coastal, it's very different and it's glamour and what's the most exciting next thing. And And I've never been drawn to that. I've been drawn to what works for an individual, not what trend should you follow. So I do want that woman to think, yes, I can have the courage to come online and try something. And I think one day would I be in a Ultra or Sephora? And the hardest thing for me, for where I'm at right now, is that I want you to experience more than just buying a blusher in a shop, because we are more than that. And I think in this day and age, when there's so many brands out there, When you start a kind of tech-inspired brand and you get clever CMOs who are doing things with you and they say, our North Star metric, you know, you have all these terminology, our North Star metric is this. And and it's a very good way for the company to focus on what is our North Star metric and things. But I always add in at any newcomers coming into the business and I just say, you know, the most important thing we can do is leave a woman feeling better about herself emotionally once she has interacted with us. And it's how you can actually do that better when you communicate on social and better if you, when you do a store, you own that whole experience, you know, and it's not just somebody who's from an agency turning up that day at your stand and doesn't have any interest in helping that woman from the lot of your customers. I want to pivot just a minute and talk about being a founder over 50, because there are a lot more of us than I think people realize. And when you think of D2C, millennial brands sort of get all the credits for, for reinventing how we shop, yet your matching system is proprietary, so it's not off the shelf. So technology is very much ingrained in what you've done. What you've built is really very innovative. And, you know, maybe I'm a late bloomer, but I feel like I've just started hitting my stride at 54. And I agree with you. I think in the 50s, I don't know whether it's because I care less or whether I know that I am a better founder and a better leader now than I was 20 years ago. Much more like even keeled. But that being said, I think that ageism in beauty is rampant. 
And this is especially true when fundraising, even though statistically older founders are more likely to succeed. I've heard stories from my friends through fundraising that make my hair curl. I'm curious about what your experience has been founding a brand and sort of fundraising. I think that one of the most shocking stats is that in the UK, and I don't know if this is a a UK and US, but in the UK, 2% of founder businesses last year that were founded by women were funded. So 98% were male founders and 2% were female founders. So there is still that discrimination against how can a female founder do what a male founder is going to do. So then you've got to put age in there. And that's probably like 0.0%. But I remembered when I went, I had bootstrapped at the beginning. And then I worked in fashion. So I sold a lot of my clothes to kind of get that $80,000 I needed to kind of get it to a stage where then I could go for funding and finish the development and stuff. And when I went, there would be lots of opinions from people. And I was in a mainly male investor world that I was going to talk to. But a few of them were, love the idea, but can you do it this way? I'd like you to take your nice makeup stuff, sell it in a shop, and then you can do that really clever tech and put it online with multi-brands. So I was like, "Mm, okay, and why is that? And they go, because it would just be better. And I go, but that makes both of them have fewer barriers to entry. And I'm kind of creating something which is more unique, but it won't work. And then next one I saw, he said, it's a great idea, but you have to change demographic. It's got to be for Gen Z because they're the only ones who are going to do it. You know, so that was the one opinion. And then I had a lot of them who just said, those people, this is one of my favorites, Kelly, these people that you're trying to address they're older and you're older and you're going to age with them and then you'll never have a new customer. <laughs> so that was one of my classics. And I was like, but everyone gets to this age, so will it not then be relevant for them? But anyway, they didn't get that. So I did have a lot of that and I had a lot of people who didn't. And I had moments where, you know, I had this quite big venture capital company and we're on a podcast now, but I'll show you kind of because it's quite funny. And I, I was there with one other person I had taken to the meeting with me who actually became my first investor. But When we were there, the men were sitting and they had one leg over the other and they had their arms behind their head and they were like their elbows outstretched, okay? And then there was one woman there, Camilla, and she was like this, head on her hand, leaning in forward. And afterwards, Jane goes, none of them are going to invest. And I go, why? And she was, haven't you read the body book is that tells you what everything means? That means like they don't give a shit. So I was like, okay. And then the only person, this woman then called me and said, I know as a company, we decided not to invest, but is there any way you would take my money? Because <laughs> I want to invest. And so it took a long time. But what was very interesting is I also didn't find it easy from a couple of female investment companies. And that was a bit of ageism. There's a quite famous fund, which is you know, two girls who are maybe in their late 20s, they got given quite a lot of money and they'd had a successful startup. And I kind of knew they thought I was too old. I'd never had that before because I never actually feel, I, I just did this interview just now with the Financial Times and she said, you know, do you feel old in some way, you know? And I go, I never actually feel that I am an age. I only say, if someone says how old you are, I say I'm 58, but I never feel I'm an age. I feel I'm this being with an energy. <laughs> and so the only other people are the people who judge me for my age. But I think that when I tried to start a direct consumer 
D2C business online in 1998. And online was just forming. It was very much early. And I was that kind of young, you know, got the idea. And it was a time in the market where they threw money at stuff. I raised a million dollars in two weeks. And then I raised a further $10 million from J.H. Whitney and another VC to do a kind of portal for women. And this was there was no e-commerce online. All right. It was a portal for women destination. would want to do everything. And I was going to make the money through data and stuff. It was kind of whatever. It was quite an interesting idea, but I got money so quickly for this idea. And two years later, I had to, you know, I closed it. I had to lay off 60 people. It was, I learned so much from that time. And I learned bullshit will only take you so far in terms of your self-belief. You know, there's self-belief and there's self-belief with substance. And that's where there's a difference. So, you know, when you look at you as an investable woman and me as an investable woman, you know, we might not know exactly how VR is going to impact a beauty brand today, but we do know emotionally how women think in our target market. And that might be different from somebody in their 30s who have another skill set or in their 20s who has a different skill set. You know, you definitely bear out the statistic. I think a statistic that I read is that 50-year-old startup founders are 2.2 times more likely to found a successful startup than a 30-year-old. It doesn't account for sort of male and female. And a 50-year-old is 2.8% times more likely to be successful than a 25-year-old founder. I love these stats. Where are you getting them from? It was from AARP, which... AARP is one of those companies that I would love to help reinvigorate because they're very sad mailer with a bunch of balloons was the only time that made me feel bad about turning 50. <laughs> but they do such good work. <laughs> but it's AARP. Given the investment environment in the last decade, you have actually raised a relatively small amount of money, converted roughly $9 million to build a brand that's now sold in 130 countries and one of the fastest growing direct consumer startups in Europe. Speaking to other founders and investors, our community has a lot of investors. The investor you finally landed, Unilever Ventures, I think is one of the smarter ones. I love how they approach the brands they invest in. But are there any misconceptions about founders over 50 that you would change? I think it's just about what kind of founder they are. I sort of tend to take the age out, Kelly. I do an elevator pitch series on my Instagram every Friday, and I have different women and they do this little elevator pitch and we do a bit of behind the scenes where I talk to them about their business and stuff. And they're all different ages, but it's about how well they know their business, their target market and how well they pitch. It's sort of, I don't even see their age. And I define things by age very little, actually. It goes back to the thing that, you know, it's about your attitude, not your age. So I couldn't answer that. The things that I've heard for friends who have been, have fundraisers, you know, they don't think that women over 50 have enough energy to run a business. They'll write a check for someone who has no experience, but yet someone has 20 years of experience is somehow that is not an attribute, but a detriment. I think it's this reframing of age that I think I'm hopeful that investors will look at differently. You know what I would say, Matt, though, Kelly, I would say if you've got somebody listening who is wanting to start a business, that we can so easily be judged on different levels when we go out to fundraise. So don't allow somebody to put you in a box they could easily put you in if you think they're being ageist. And, you know, I intentionally in my life, I love to wear bright colors. I 
I love to be really aware of the newest things. So one thing I did a chat on Sunday, just on my Instagram two weeks ago, just talking about how important I know it is for me as a woman in my 50s to understand every new technology as it comes in. Because if I was in my 20s, I knew I would. And in our 50s, we can get lazy because we prioritize. And, you know, it starts with my daughter gets me online with something to, you know, whatever. And we start to let go of our knowledge of how to do things because if we're doing them every day. We just do them. And we might have young people around who will rush in to kind of do something quicker for you. And you've got to get your glasses. I can quickly read that before you can read it. You know, there's those little bits. But I do think we have responsibility to be really informed. You know, I listen to Ezra Klein. He does really good podcasts and I love his podcasts. I listen to Pivot. I like Pivot a lot. And I want to really understand. I mean, Ezra Klein helped me understand NFTs and OpenSea. And he did an interview with a woman who was a FBI tracker of illegal cyber currency. And then she started her own fund and she was fascinating. And I, and because he interviewed a really good person, I learned it. And I just, you know, my chat with these women, I was saying, it's really important you don't let go of that stuff because that's what will give you an agelessness about you. That's what will give you that perennially inquisitive mind. And if you start losing those, that will come across. If you're going for investment and somebody mentions a technology and you don't quite know it, they will immediately judge you for it. So don't do things to let them judge you. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I have one last question. You just recently launched skincare, which also, again, you know, super innovative because, you know, it is all refillable. It's great looking. It's science backed. It's sort of efficacy first. I'm sure it's a huge hit. But what is next for Trini London? What does success look like for you with this business? I think when you're building a brand, you've got to think, how far does that brand stretch? And if you stretch too wide without going deep, you aren't come across as a serious contender. So for me, it was really important to spend four years just talking about makeup. I have five verticals, by the way, four years just talking about makeup. So if you could really understand what's oppositional makeup, what do we believe we want to do for you? We launched skincare in February. It's already 34% of our business. And we are really establishing what we believe skincare should be. And to me, skincare is about understanding everyone should have a routine and understanding the layering of products and understanding an inky list at the back and what does that mean and where should it be and really to have responsibility. So in our education for talking about what we do as a brand, it's also, are you looking and seeing what those products are and are they above or below the fragrance label if it's in there and stuff like that. So then you need a period of time by which people then think, yeah, Trini London skincare makeup brand or they'll probably quite quickly say skincare and makeup brand. Because interestingly, even though makeup is something you see on a woman, that word of mouth is staggeringly stronger in skincare. So in makeup, we have things like Miracle Blur. It's a real word of mouth product, BFF. But you know, you might see me, I'm in a lip today and somebody say, that's a great color lip. What is it? It's Sweeney. I got to Trinity London. But skincare because a lot of the women who have been the early adopts have bought in a routine, they've got friends coming up saying, God, your skin looks incredible, you know? So then they do say, I'm using this whole new range. You know, it's like you talk about it. So if the effect on your skin is so good that you're talking about it, that's that magic point for me. So I believe that skincare definitely has many things coming, but the fundamental of the core things you need for a routine are there. There's 11 things, 10 things, they're there. And that will expand in a few areas that are relevant 
but never for the sake of it products ever. We never do for the sake of it products or to tick. You know, I once had somebody come into my NDP department. They said, Brown, we can split it four ways and do nine things on it. And I said, why? Why complicate it? Why not say, lash to brow, that's your brow, that's your lash. Easy. Now let's do this. You know, I don't know. I just, that's, I don't want to think, oh my God, there's another splitting of hairs here. And then from that, there's three different areas, you know, that I'm looking at and already in R&D. And they are areas that when you see that we're doing them, it will feel a very natural extension from what we do because we are finding new solutions and routines and with an emotional connection. And so that can go into quite a few areas, which it will be going into. And it's when we do them. And I had somebody say, can you get that ready by X? And I said, no, because it's such a process and you need many, many tests on things. So when it's ready, it will be ready. You know, that's why I started skincare six months after I launched makeup. It took me three and a half years to get it ready. So we have started some things. And it's sort of either of the two which are getting started could come first. And I don't know which one to come first yet. Well, Trini, it was such a pleasure meeting you. Well, not exactly in person, but you know. Where do you live, Kelly? Are you in New York? Or- yeah, I live in New York, but we are actually doing an event in London. We just finalized it in October with the British Beauty Council. So Fabulous. Yeah. So exciting. Well, I really hope to see you there. Yeah, that would be fantastic. But thank you for your time and, and telling your story. I just think it's, I think it's important. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks. It's Trini. And for me, it's a matter of energy. Because if I can wake up every day and look in the mirror and not feel tired and feel full of energy, whatever my age is, I can do anything. For Trini, it's a matter of energy. She firmly believes that your 50s are better than your 20s because you stop worrying about what other people think, which gives you freedom to actually think. Trini London has all the trappings of a successful startup in the digital age, a founder that is a prolific creator with millions of followers on social media and an intuitive sense for what women want and a laser focus on data and community. In five years, she's built a global beauty brand sold in 130 countries that's still primarily D2C, with 750,000 customers, $60 million in revenue, and close to 200 employees. But Trini's just getting started. So in the end, it's a matter of energy. I'm Kelly Kovac. See you next time. If you like what you heard, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. It's a Matter Of is a production of Beauty Matter. You can find more content and insights on beautymatter.com and follow us on social media.